earlier, I forgot to thank you guys again for um, the surprise last week, the kind words, the gift basket, all the goodies and cards. That was much appreciated and was a great encouragement, so thank you for that. So it's a joy to... um, be your pastor. It's a joy to worship with you. It's a joy to follow Christ with you. And now it's a joy to open up God's word together with you. So, but I thank God for you all. So, let's uh, turn in our Bibles into Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. That is page 185 um, if you're using the, the Black Bibles. Our series in the book of Joshua has brought us. This morning to chapter 10. And while you're finding that, just want to just jump right into our kind of our theme today, and that is one of a battle, right? The Bible describes the Christian life as a battle. Every day we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? We face temptations, distractions, um, an opposition from this fallen world. We face temptations from our, from our own evil desires that still remain um, within. We, we battle the fiery darts from the evil one of discouragement, doubt, discord, and, and accusation. So every day we are in a battle. And as a Christian, this daily battle can leave us feeling exhausted and, and overwhelmed and and maybe even sometimes wondering, should we just throw in the towel on this? Should we just kind of sit on the sidelines in this battle? Should we, should we uh, retreat somewhere? Maybe there's some uh, utopian place. Maybe there's some safe haven where I can go and, and the battle won't be there, right? And by the way, that's not true, right? The, the battle's always going to be there because, again, the... Part of the battle is from within, right? Our own fallen um, natures, that, the, the sin that still remains. So I don't know if you ever feel that way, feel just discouraged, just weary, just kind of tired of the battle, just feel like maybe sitting, on, sitting it out for a while, sitting on the sidelines. Well, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about that kind of person, if that describes you today, because I have good news for you from God's word. And that is that the Lord is fighting for you. The Lord is fighting for you. You are not alone in this battle. God Almighty is fighting for you. And because of that, that enables us to persevere in this battle as well. So the title of the sermon this morning is The Lord Fights for His People. The Lord Fights for His People. First, we're going to see how God fought for Israel here in Joshua chapter 10. That's what we'll spend the bulk of our time considering. But then after that, I also do want us to consider how the Lord fights for his people now in the new covenant. Now again, just to remind us of the context here in Joshua 10, last week in Joshua 9, we saw that the leaders of Israel, they failed to seek the Lord in prayer, which led to them being deceived. Remember? They were deceived into making a treaty with the Gibeonites. God had commanded Israel not to make treaties, not to enter into covenants with groups of people within the land there of Canaan. But now Israel is in this binding covenant with Gibeon and its associated uh, cities there. And so that's, that's the reality. 
And the reason I bring that up is because that's going to play into the, that's going to kind of lead to the occasion here of chapter 10. Because now in chapter 10, that covenant that Israel foolishly made with Gibeon is going to quickly be put to the test because five Amorite kings are going to join together, their armies are going to join together and attack Gibeon. But before we dig into the account specifically, let me just kind of give an overview of how this chapter is laid out, just so hopefully you can kind of follow the flow here. This, this battle, right, it's going to be describing a battle with these five Amorite uh, kings. That's, it's, it's kind of summarized or, or described briefly in verses 1 through 10. And then verses 11 through 15 are going to give additional details about um, how that bat- what happened in that battle. And then verses 16 through 27 are going to give more details specifically about the, the five Amorite kings. And then verses 28 through 39 are going to um, even expand out and talk about what Israel did in, after that battle, but in other battles in the, what is called the Southern Campaign as the conquest moved to the south. Okay? So... Um, Hopefully that'll help you, and I'll try to point those things out along the way, uh, because it can be a little tricky sometimes to keep the order straight here, uh, because, you know, he'll give a summary, the, the, the writer of Joshua kind of give a summary, and then he'll circle back and, and explain it in more detail, and you're kind of like, wait a minute, is this, is this describing the same thing, or is this a new account? So I'll try to make that clear as we go through. So with that in mind, look at verse 1 now, with news of the Amorite attack on Gibeon. Verse 1, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, it's interesting by the way, right? When we see Jerusalem, we immediately think of like, oh, God's people, right? The city of David, right? No, at this time, this is not the city of David. This is uh, led by uh, the Amorites, right? So this is a, under wicked rule here. So as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and and he heard, in other words, how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Verse 6, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So that kind of gives us the the setting, the occasion, what's happening here, right? We see that this king of Jerusalem, this Amorite king, he's organized this coalition with four other guys to attack Gibeon. And the text says that he was afraid because he sees that Israel is getting too powerful. Israel is getting too big a foothold there in Canaan. Because now, you know, he's, putting, he's kind of adding this together. And he's saying, wow, they've defeated Jericho. And, and with the defeat of Jericho, with the defeat of Ai, with now Gibeon being on their side, they're getting this, this huge swath of land right in the middle, of, in the central part of Canaan here. And it's 
They're getting too powerful and it's cutting us off from, from the north and south. And so we need to stop this, is what he's saying. So in an, in an attempt to reduce Israel's power and probably also to punish Gibeon, right? They probably see Gibeon as like traitors. You know, how could you side with Israel here? These five Amorite kings then lead their armies to jointly attack Gibeon. You say, okay, well, what does that have to do with Israel? Well, because Israel had entered into this covenant with Gibeon, now they're obligated to come to Gibeon's defense, right? It's kind of like, I think, how NATO is supposed to work, right? You know, an attack on one is an attack on us all, okay? So now that's the situation. What's, what is Joshua and the Israelites going to do about it? Well, verse 7 says, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, right? Because they've gotten word now from Gibeon, help us, we're being attacked so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So Joshua takes all the Israelite army with him up to Gibeon, which, if you're looking at a map, Gibeon was about 20 miles away, and also it's about uh, 3,300 feet and higher in elevations. So yeah, went up to Gibeon is, is right. Uh, and by the way, we're going to learn from verse 9 that when Joshua and the Israelite army set out, they, they actually march all night long to get to Gibeon by sunrise. All right, so I mean, they are, they are uh, high-stepping it here, right? Quick double time. As they're going, sometime along the way is when probably God speaks these words to Joshua in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Right, talking about all these Amorites, these five Armies that have all joined together now. God says, do not fear them. Why? For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So you see what God's doing? He's assuring Joshua of victory. And this is the same kind of language we've seen several times in the book of Joshua, haven't we? This, uh, I have given them into your hands. He said that about Jericho. He said that about Ai, right? Saying it in the past tense. Like, it's a done deal, God's going to bring about this victory for his people. And so, again, we just have to step back and say how, how gracious of God. Remember, Israel's covenant with Gibeon was, was a foolish mistake on their part. But like I kind of mentioned last week, God in his sovereign grace works through that mistake, works through even you know, our sin to accomplish his purposes. And God's going to work through this, right? I mean... You know, he, he's already commanded the Israelites to, to uh, carry out the conquest. And now it's like God is working through this to bring the, the Amorites to, to them. It's like he's furthering his purposes in, in the five Amorite armies attacking um, Gibeon. So God's at work here. He assures them of victory. Verse 9. This is now verse 9 is going to tell us of they've marched all night. Now they're there. So Joshua, verse 9, came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by, by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Now again, that's a summary of the battle. Okay, that's, that's saying like how far they're, they're getting defeated, and they're getting driven away and defeated along the way. So that's a summary. Now the text is going to give us some more details of what occurs during that battle that it's just summarized here in verses 11 through 14, okay? 
And as they fled, verse 11, before Israel, while they were going down uh, the ascent of Beth Haran, look at this. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, on the Amorites, right, as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Wow. I mean, this is kind of like how God fought for um, the Israelites back in Egypt, right? You know, this is almost like a plague here. But let's get the picture. Having marched all night, Israel is able to launch this surprise attack on the Amorites again, probably right at, the, at sunrise. And throughout this battle, what I want us to see is we, we see the Lord fighting for Israel, don't we? I mean, what has the text already told us? The Lord threw the Amorites into a panic, which in, enabled the Israelites right away to inflict heavy losses on them. Then as the Amorites are, are fleeing, the Lord rains down these large hailstones on them, killing even more of them than the Israelites had struck down with the sword. So clearly the Lord is fighting for Israel. So the battle is going well. The Amorites are fleeing. Many have been killed by the hailstones. But it appears, and again, if we try to picture this, and from the text it appears that there's still several of, the, of, the, of their enemies, several of the Amorites who were escaping at this point. Perhaps by hiding in caves to seek shelter from the hailstones. I, I say that because that's what we're going to see the five kings did. And so by now the day is starting to wear on. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm picturing Joshua. He's, yes, the battle's gone well, but there's still more enemy that needs to be destroyed. And the sun is about to, it, the sun's going down. And Joshua knows, oh man, when it gets dark, it's going to be difficult to destroy all these guys. Especially if they are hiding out in different places. And so that leads Joshua to make a bold, faith-filled request of the Lord in verse 12. Look at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ahijalon. Verse 13. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And then the, the, the writer of Joshua goes on to say, is this not written, this miracle, this amazing thing that God did, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. See, there's our theme. The Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua prayed for God to extend the daylight, to, to hold off the night coming so that Israel could see to pursue and destroy their enemies. And God answered Joshua's prayer by working a miracle literally of cosmic proportions. <laughs> Apparently God caused the earth to stop rotating for a time in order to extend the daylight. We don't know all the details of that. But clearly God answered Joshua's prayer. He lengthened the daylight so that Israel could have total victory over the Amorites. Amazing, right? God literally moved heaven and earth. When, you know, right? We use that expression. I mean, he... 
We could say he moved the heavenly bodies or, or influenced the heavenly bodies for his people. And of course, a miracle like this causes some people to start raising scientific objections as they describe, oh, you know, the chaos that would have occurred if, if the planet, if the earth would stop rotating. But I think all of that, I think that loses sight of, of, of the power of God. I think that loses sight of what a miracle is. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Psalm 74, 16 declares that day and night belong to God. God is the almighty creator. God is the sustainer of the universe. He holds all things together by his powerful word, Hebrews 1 says. And so again, this is not too hard for God to do. The same God who spoke this world into existence, who caused the virgin to conceive, who raised Jesus from the dead, that same God can stop the earth from rotating while also powerfully protecting the rest of creation from any ill effects. I mean, that's not hard for, for me to believe. You know, and you can call me a simpleton or whatever, but God can do that. God can do that. So let us just believe God's word and not worry about what the world thinks. Here in Joshua 10, God worked a great miracle. The sun did not set for, it's going to say about a whole day, like another whole day. It was a day so unique that another non-biblical writing at the time recorded this event as well. Right, The book of Jasher. We don't have any copies of that book today, the book of Jasher. Apparently, the original readers of Joshua could have referred to this book to see that, hey, it collaborates this event as well. It reminds me, you know, of 1 Corinthians 15 when, when Paul's talking about the resurrection, right, of Christ. And he's like, man, he appeared to, to, to Peter. He appeared to the, the apostles. He appeared to like 500 men, some of them who are still alive. You know, go talk to them. That's kind of what he's you know, talking about here, hey, the sun stood still, and, and, you know, there were guys that wrote about it. <laughs> it was a huge deal. But notice the emphasis here in Joshua 10 is God's commitment to his people. God listened to Joshua's prayer. God intervened in this powerful, cosmic way. Why? Well, verse 14 tells us, because the Lord fought for Israel. What a beautiful statement. The Lord fought for Israel. And then verse 15 kind of gives us a summary statement, which is going to, again, I don't, I don't know why the narrator likes to do it this way, but it's like it, verse 15 summarizes everything, kind of anticipates the very ending. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. He's anticipating the conclusion there. And now then in verses 16... And following, like I said, he's going to kind of circle back, flesh out more details of what took place in the battle, right? He's already described it. He's described the miracle. He's described the total victory. Now let's, let's give you more details if you're curious about them. So verses 16 specifically hone in on what happened to these five kings, right? These kings who get, had, had grouped together to, to fight Gibeon, which was fighting against God's people, essentially. Verse 16, these five kings fled and hid themselves in the caves at Makedah. 
And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedon. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Don't let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were all wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Right? So that, that's pretty self-explanatory. Okay, we got these kings cornered. Great. Uh, you know, we'll trap them in there. Let's, 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 do, let's pursue the army while we can. Once they get done doing that, now they come back to where the, the kings are. Verse 22 Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave, bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the neck of these kings. And then they came near. And put their feet on their necks. I mean, just, again, you know, just kind of visualize that. The symbolism that he's, he's portraying here. He, he's, he's making a point. He wants to encourage and, 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 and foster and cultivate the faith of God's people here. I think I'm in verse 25 now. Verse 25, and Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Right? Physically, those leaders were seeing that. With their their feet on the the rulers, the kings of those who had, had come against them. Verse 26. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, the kings there. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. So we've seen this before, haven't we? Where these evil kings are killed and then they're, they're hung on trees until evening, remember, to show that they are being cursed by God. These evil kings who had rebelled against the Lord, rebelled against God's people. It, it was a symbolic way of showing they are, they are being cursed. God has forsaken them. He's rejected them because they rebelled against him. Then they're at, at evening they're taken down, buried. And another memorial. We've seen this several times in Joshua, haven't we? Another memorial is, is, uh, is built there as the kings are buried in that cave uh, this memorial's placed there. Why? To remind God's people. To remind even future generations of how God powerfully fought for his people and to remind them of what happens to those who oppose the Lord. So this, again, was to be encouraging, to build their faith. And that's why Joshua had the military leaders put their feet on the necks of the Amorites, right? I mean, that's a symbolic way of showing total supremacy. The Bible even talks about it several times, this, this notion or the saying of making your enemies your footstool. Total supremacy, total victory. You say, man, you're, you're really getting into that, Jathan. Why are you making such a big deal about that? 
Well, the Bible says in places like Acts 2.35, Hebrews 10.13, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, having died and rose again, he has been given all authority and he will one day make all his enemies his footstool. That's good news, isn't it? Praise God. Back to Joshua 10 then. The five Amorite kings have been destroyed. Gibeon's been protected. And really the rest of the chapter, I wasn't going to go through it, but it describes how Israel now goes into southern Canaan and defeats even more Canaanite city-states. And it just covers it, you know, like boom, 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 like in a summary fashion, each one being a battle, each one being where God has given them over into their hands, each time Israel being victorious. Why? Well, verse 42 tells us down at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Second time it said it, right? Here in chapter 10, Israel's defeated all these different armies, all the ones that raised up against them, all the ones left in the south, has defeated all these armies again and again. How were they able to do that? How were they able to have such impressive victories? Well, like we've seen in verse 14 and verse 42, because the Lord fought for Israel. And of course, I mean, we could go through... The Old Testament, it's full of examples of how the Lord fights for Israel, intervening with miracles, giving them strength, delivering them in miraculous ways. The Old Testament's full of those examples of how the Lord fights for Israel. And what I want us to to get a hold of this morning is we see this same glorious truth with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about Jesus coming and dying in your place, I want you to think of him fighting for you. I want you to think of him rescuing you from your enemies. The eternal son of God came to rescue his people from bondage to Satan, from bondage to sin and to death. Jesus fought for his people. Not with swords, not with an army, right? (laughs) That's how the disciples were thinking they had to fight. No, how did Jesus fight? How did Jesus fight for his people? By suffering, by dying in their place on the cross, by living a perfect life and then laying down his life as a sacrifice, as an atoning sacrifice for sin. His death, his resurrection, by dying and rising again, the Bible says Jesus defeated sin, he defeated death, he defeated Satan. He defeated the enemy of our souls. His sinless sacrifice fully paid the penalty for the sins of his people. That's huge, right? Our greatest enemy is sin and death. An enemy that we were powerless to do anything about. And Christ has defeated that enemy. He has paid our penalty in full. His victorious resurrection has defeated sin and death and Satan. Colossians 2, 14 
I'm going to read this important passage to you. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Again, I'm kind of jumping in the context here. Um, maybe I'll even read a little bit more. Just so we get at least the beginning of the sentence. Colossians chapter 2. We'll go up to verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, here's what I want us to see today. By canceling, verse 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You hear that? Warrior type language, you hear that victory, that battle type language? Christ has triumphed over the evil forces. How? Well, because they, if you're in Christ, Satan can no longer accuse you. I will, he can accuse you, but none of his accusations are going to stick. Right? What's Satan going to say? Hey, man, you're a rotten sinner. And you're like, you know, you're right. But Christ has paid for my sin. God loves me. I am forgiven. My penalty has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And there's nothing Satan can do about that. He cannot take away our salvation. He cannot snatch us out of the Father's hand. And so Christ has triumphed over our adversary. He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. The risen and glorified Christ then sent his spirit to give new life and apply Christ's saving work. So again, I want us to just think about how is Christ, how is the triune God fighting for his people? Well, Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he defeated sin and death, like I've said. Now then, having been exalted at the Father's right hand, he sends his spirit. Why? To to rescue his people. (laughs) To to seek and save the lost, to apply the work of Christ to individual people through the new birth. So through the new birth then and our union with Christ, we are personally rescued from sin's bondage and we're given eternal life. Again, listen to the language the New Testament uses. Same book, Colossians, now back in chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Right, Ephesians 2 talks about how by nature we were born enslaved to sin, enslaved to the evil one, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were in that domain of darkness. We were blinded to the truth of who God is. We were slaves to sin, believing the lie of living for ourselves. And what did God do? He powerfully and graciously sought us through the gospel, through his spirit. He gave us new life. He gave us new hearts. He gave us faith to cry out to God in repentance and belief. And he united us with Jesus through faith. And as he did that, he, he gave us new life. 
He delivered us from the domain of darkness. He set us free from bondage to sin. He gave us new, resurrected, eternal life. So that, that can never be taken away. And so now, yes, we still, in Adam, still live under the curse of sin and the fact that we, our bodies are going to die someday. But that's not the end. Death will usher us into the presence of the Lord. And death itself has been defeated because when Christ returns, we know we will be raised from the dead in glorified bodies. So Christ has defeated our enemies. He's defeated sin and death. What a powerful and loving Savior we have. Be encouraged. Think about this. Jesus fought for us when we were powerless to save ourselves. What could we do against against sin? We were slaves to it. What could we do against death? What could we do against the evil one? But Jesus has fought for us. Jesus has won the victory. And of course, the Lord continues to fight for us now, doesn't he? I mean, he continues to fight for us. He's the good shepherd. He's, he's, he's the comforter. He, he's, he's in us. He's, he's, he, he's, he's guiding us. He's protecting us from, like I said, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. By his spirit, he's, he's continuing to teach us and, and guide us through the challenges of life. He continues to help us in our battle against sin. He always provides a way of escape when we're tempted. He's the one giving us grace. He's the one bringing to our minds the truths of Scripture and and the promises of the gospel. He's pointing us down the path of, of deliverance moment by moment. He's leading us down paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's giving us grace to persevere through trials. He's comforting us when our hearts are broken. He is fighting for us. He's ministering to us. So praise God. Praise God that the Lord fights for his people. If you're in Christ today, praise God that the Lord has fought for you and he's continuing to fight for you and provide for you. Praise God for that. Be encouraged by that. But in that, I want us to see another important principle that, you know, we see in Joshua, we certainly see it taught in the New Testament. The fact that the Lord is fighting for us, so what do we do? What are we supposed to do? Oh, good, the Lord's fighting for us. I, I'll, just, I'll just kind of kick back, right? I'll just kind of coast. Is that what... Joshua and the Israelites did? No. No, in Joshua 10, the Lord fought for the nation of Israel, but that didn't mean that Israel was passive. I mean, they marched all night. Israel engaged in the battle. Joshua prayed boldly. Israel pursued the enemy. Israel fought. The Lord gave the victory, and the Lord also gave the strength to Israel to fight. And it was their responsibility then to fight. Now again, just to be clear, we are powerless to fight when it comes to our conversion. Right? I mean, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But now, having been given new life, having been raised with Christ, having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are to fight when it comes to our growth in the Christian life. 
And that's the battle I was really kind of describing at the beginning, wasn't I? This battle that we're in daily. Am I going to believe God's word or am I going to believe the lies of, of the devil and the lies of this world? Am I going to find my satisfaction and joy in Christ or am I going to look for it in, in what the world has to offer? No, we are to daily fight when it comes to our growth in the Christian life. Listen to this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll read verse 10 just to give us a little bit of the context. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 11 of 1 Timothy 6. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We are to fight the good fight of the faith. Do you hear that language? Pursue, fight, press on. Reminded me of, of Philippians chapter 3 when Paul is talking about really kind of his own testimony. right? And he's talking about how God is... God delivered him, and you know, he used to trust in all of his, his, his pharisaical works of righteousness. Now he considers them rubbish. What's his pursuit? I want to know Christ, he says. And I know I haven't obtained it, but I press on to win the prize for which God has called me in Christ. He's pressing on. He's fighting. Loved ones, we must fight. We must fight. We must fight to renew our minds, as Romans says. We must fight to abide in Christ. We must fight to put to death the sin that remains. We must fight to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Again, this is because God is at work in us. Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is the Lord who works within you. So I'm not talking about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm talking about seeking the Lord, asking him for daily strength, to fight, daily strength to believe, daily strength to pursue the means of grace. Because that's how we fight. <laughs> that's how we fight. Our, again, our weapons are not physical. We put on the spiritual armor. We put on the gospel armor. We fight. Are you fighting today? Are you fighting Like I said, I know we get weary. I know we get weary. But don't give up the fight. Don't give up the fight, right? It's easy to do that. And that's not going to lead to victory. That's not going to lead to joy. Seek the Lord. Ask him for grace. His mercies are new every morning to give us the strength to fight one step in front of the other. It's the Lord who fights for us, right? Ephesians 6, stand, stand firm then in the strength of the Lord. Or stand firm in the Lord in the strength of his might. And as you do that daily, again, be encouraged. One day the fight will be over. One day the fight will be over. One day, 
the final victory will be won. As we sang, one day Christ is going to return and he's going to destroy his enemies once and for all. Their doom is sure. They've been given, Satan's been given a lethal blow already. One day Christ is going to return and all evil will be eradicated forever. Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will be punished forever and ever. So there will be a day, loved ones, when the battle will be over. There will be a day when we together get to enjoy the Lord forever in his perfect kingdom. And until that day then, with that assurance of final victory, with that sure hope, that certain future, until that day then, let us press on in faith and in obedience. Let us press on with the strength that God provides Let us fight for holiness. Let us fight for intimacy with Christ, knowing that the Lord is fighting for his people. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. What a mighty God you are and what a loving and gracious God you are. You could have left us in in our sin. You could have left us in our, our bondage and deadness. But out of your great love, out of your amazing grace, and out of zeal for your glory, you came and rescued your people. Through your suffering and death and resurrection, you have won the victory. And we praise you for your, that you are an ever-present help in our fight. That you are right here with us. That you've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us prayer. You've given us the church that we can fight together this good fight of the faith. So Father, please give faith to your people today. Open their eyes to see you fighting for them. Remind them of the victory that Christ has has already won and the final victory that is to come. And strengthen them. Lord, encourage them. Get them back in the fight if they've, if they've been on the sidelines. Let us all press on that we can know you better. That we can grow and be more like Christ and bring glory to him. Thank you for being there with us, for fighting for us. We praise you for your love and new morning mercies. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's stand together and sing our praises.